Turn with me this morning to Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 4. Nehemiah, chapter 4. This morning, uh, I want to talk to us uh, on the subject, let's, let's, let's build the wall. Let's build the wall. We know uh, if you have studied the Bible much, you know that here in the Old Testament, if you understand your Old Testament history, you know that in, that in 586 B.C., the Babylonian army came into Jerusalem. Uh, they surrounded the city. They literally starved out the inhabitants, uh, literally forced them to surrender. Uh, they came in. They began to summarily murder various individuals. It was a wholesale slaughter. Uh, they deported thousands of Jews in various stages of the deportation. They deported them uh, to Babylon. Uh, The city was left in ruin and the walls of the city of Jerusalem were broken down. If I understand historically the importance of walls in ancient cities, it is this, that cities of any prominence in ancient times, especially in the ancient east, Walls of any, or cities of any importance had walls around it. A defensive wall was a fortification used to protect a city from potential aggressors. Such was the case with the city of Jerusalem. But because of this Babylonian invasion, because of the subsequent deportation By the inhabitants of Jerusalem, only a handful, uh, the Bible uses a word, remnant. It's used many times in the Old Testament. It just means just a little bit, just a residue, just a small amount, a small fraction were left behind and the walls were broken down. A city without walls was a city that could not rebuild. A city without walls was a city that was open to attack. A city without walls was a city whose infrastructure could not be restored or strengthened. And that's exactly what was happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city that absolutely had no fortification. It had no walls. There was a man named Nehemiah. There's some speculation about Nehemiah's ancestry as far as whether or not he was connected uh, to any of the royal family or to any of the spiritual leadership at one time in Jerusalem. We really don't know for sure, but here's what we're pretty confident in, that Nehemiah himself was born into captivity. His mom and dad were part of these Jews who had been deported into Babylon. And then the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire came in and they conquered the Babylonians. So if you were conquered by the Babylonians, then whoever conquered them means that they conquered you. And you were now their possession, their property, their servants. It is doubtful that Nehemiah had ever laid eyes on Jerusalem. But as the king's cupbearer, King Artaxerxes, as his cupbearer, Nehemiah was in a very prominent place. Obviously, the man had good character. 
Obviously, he was very trustworthy, very dependable, very resilient. It is believed that he not only was responsible to ensure the integrity and quality by way of safety and taste, but more importantly, safety of the king's food, he was the one who would perhaps be in charge of presenting the food, bringing the food to the king. He was a very trustworthy man by the king himself. The king put a lot of stock in Nehemiah. Artaxerxes trusted the man. And that's going to come into play here in just a moment. We're going to see why that's so important. If you know your Bible, you know the rest of the story. Nehemiah, under the sanction and the authority of an earthly king, he leads an effort to go return to Jerusalem and to repair, or as we say, rebuild the wall. And so here's where we pick up our reading, chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall... He, Sanballat, who, by the way, was sort of a foreigner. He, 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 he didn't have claim, by the way, in Jerusalem. It's believed he was a Samaritan. Which means that he had no inheritance in Jerusalem. He really, can I say it this way, he had no business being there. For whatever reason, I personally believe, and I think the scripture bears this out, that Sanballat had political aspirations to be able to kind of get his foot in the door when it came to uh, being able to be a governor or some type of leader or director there in Jerusalem. So Sanballat comes along after the completion of the project, the construction, the restoration, the revitalization project, we would say, of the walls of Jerusalem that had been torn down and were in disrepair. So when he heard that we builded the walls, he, Sanballat, was wroth. And he took great indignation. He was mad. And he mocked the Jews. He spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? You see the sarcasm and the mockery in his words there. Verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, by the way, Tobiah the Ammonite, he was, an, he was from Ammon, he was an Ammonite. He had no claim in Jerusalem. He didn't have any beeswax being there. He was there with, with Sanballat just kind of wanting to cause trouble and cause a controversy. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, he said, he wanted to chime in, and the peanut gallery speaks. And he said, notice what he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. In other words, hey, a little fox could run across the top of that wall and topple it over. Now this is a parenthetical thought, a statement added by Nehemiah, as he's hearing this, 
as he, they have completed the wall and now, now here comes more opposition, more opposition. You ever feel like it doesn't matter what you do, that you get opposition on every hand? Some of you understand that. We, hey, by the way, we all understand that, right? And, and, and here, here comes the criticism. Here comes the opposition. And instead of Nehemiah turning the frustration outward, he turns it heavenward. Instead of griping and complaining, and he prays about it. It's interesting to me, this isn't my sermon, but it's interesting to me that I learned from this that the best way to handle my frustration is to take it to the one who can handle my frustrating situation. And that's exactly what he does. Now notice this, verse 4. Hear, O our God. In other words, Lord, listen to that mess. (laughs) Lord, hear them. Listen to what they're saying, God. Listen to what they're saying. Lord, you hear them. For we are despised. Turn their reproach under their own head. By the way, we just got through, uh, I believe last week, talking about uh, imprecatory psalms. We were doing a study on psalms on Wednesday night. Imprecatory psalms. Where where in the psalm itself, it's a prayer that God would bring judgment on the evildoer. (laughs) You're like, how does that harmonize with the New Testament? Go back and listen to the sermon, amen, because I ain't going to preach it again right here. But it does harmonize, and we talked about that. So he's saying, and look, verse 5, Cover not their iniquity, let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. All they're trying to do, God, is discourage the builders and frustrate them in the process. Notice verse 6. So what did, what did Nehemiah do? What did the builders do? Well, they continued to do what God had put them there to do. So built we the wall. You know, the answer to criticism is just keep doing right. You know, the answer to when you're discouraged and when you feel like throwing in the towel, just keep doing what you know God's called you to do and put you here to do. When it seems like all the odds are stacked against you, you know what God's saying here to us? Hey, you just keep doing the work. When you feel frustrated, when you feel discouraged, when you feel like nobody understands what's going on, when you can't even articulate it to somebody, do you know what you do? You just do what you know God's told you to do and stay at the work. And that's exactly what they did, gang. They weren't deterred by the criticism or the opposition. And all the wall joined together under the half thereof for the people. The people had a mind to work. What's interesting to me is the scripture reveals to us in this book that in 52 days, 52 days, the majority, if not all, of the project was completed. And I love this. Here's the reason why. Notice the last phrase, and I'm going to bring you the message. The last phrase in verse 6. For the people, the people had a mind to work. So let's talk about that. How is it in, in, in the Christian life when God gives us a task? And by the way, the Lord has given all of us a task. 
Brother Randy Sawyer last Sunday night, he talked about the universal church. And can I tell you that I do want to say a word about this right here, that thank God the Lord has divided and broken down the universal church into local churches. The local church is the visible expression of the universal church. And while we believe in that, it is absolutely true. And do you know that God has given the church work? He's given the church a mission. He's given the church a task. He's given you and I as individual Christians a task. In any time, whether it's the building of a church, the establishing a church plant, uh, building an established church or church revitalization, whether it's the building of a Bible college or a Christian university, whether it's building a Christian school, uh, whether it's, it's building some ministry under the auspices of a local church or beginning a new ministry or even a, what we call a parachurch ministry. The Lord is in that as well. Uh, there, there, there is the need for the work of God in this world to continue on and to move forward. And what we learn here, ladies and gentlemen, is not just a lesson about building God's work, but really a lesson in about teamwork and working together and moving forward in whatever legitimate enterprise God tells you to be a part of. What does it take to build the wall? What does it take to get behind the work of God and to do it with quality and to do it expeditiously? What does that take? I believe we, we, we find some of the answers here in our text. I, I just only want to show you three of them, okay? Learn with me this morning. These three valuable keys from the text to building any work for the glory of God. Statement number one, listen carefully. Something worth building involves a visionary plan. It involves a visionary plan. There has to be somebody who can envision and articulate what the plan is. It's not just um, some pipe dream. Uh, somebody said that, that a vision without a plan is simply an illusion. That's all it is. You and I can sit here all day long and we can talk about, articulate, man, I, I've got a plan for this. I've got a dream. Now, what we're saying is I've got a dream for this. I have a vision for such and such. But until that dream is attached to a strategy, all it's ever going to be is a dream. You have to have a strategy. You have to have a concrete on paper, and it's not just enough that it stays in the head of somebody. It has to be on paper. It's got to be concrete. Here, here's not only where we want to go, but here, how are we going to get to where we want to go? You see, if I want to go from here to California, I've got to figure out how am I going to get to California? Not that I really am dying to go to California, but let's just say I wanted to, right? I got to figure out a way to get there. I have to, I have to map out, no, no offense to anybody who's from California, by the way, but it's a good place to be from. But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. That's, that's how some people feel about East North Carolina. But anyway, you got to have a plan. 
every year. Every basketball coach sits down, especially in the NCAA, every year, and they get in the locker room, and they get the big old whiteboard up there, and they get their magic marker, and they put, this year, New Orleans, New Orleans, here's our goal, here's our goal for the end of the season. By the end of the season, we want to be in New Orleans. You know what that means? They want to be playing for the championship. They want to be the last team standing as CBS is playing one shiny moment at the end, right? They want to be the one cutting down the nets. Now, every coach believes that, right? Every coach does that. Every coach says, hey, tell your parents, go ahead and book their hotel rooms. No, they do. But how many of you know, not every team shows up in New Orleans. (laughs) In fact, only four of them do. (laughs) Why? Well, probably more than likely, the four that show up, they they executed the plan. And the strategy, better than all the other 300 teams. Gang, I can sit here all day long and talk about vision, 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 goals, dreams for faith, free will Baptist church. But unless there's a concrete strategy to follow, that's all it's ever going to be. It's interesting to me that any kind of visionary plan, notice this with me, it starts with a burden. It starts with a burden. Notice what it said. Go back a couple of pages to chapter 1. Look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Kislu in the 20th year. I was in Shushan. Shushan was 900 miles from Jerusalem. Hanani, Hanani, one of my brethren, came he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant that are left... There are in great affliction and reproach. The wall is broken down. The gates are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words. He said, I sat down and I wept and I mourned certain days. I fasted. I prayed before the God of heaven. Here Nehemiah was. He had never most likely seen Jerusalem. His his feet had never trotted the dusty roads of Jerusalem. He had never laid eyes on it. But oh, buddy, he had heard stories about Jerusalem. He knew that's where his granddaddy lived. And that's where his great-grandparents lived. He, He knew that one day God wanted the Jews to get back to Jerusalem. And he knew that would never happen. They'd never be reestablished as a superpower as long as the walls were broken down. And you know what it did? It broke his heart. He knew that Jerusalem was supposed to be the holy city. He knew Jerusalem was where the temple was. And he knew that the worship of Jehovah God on this earth would never be restored from the center of Jerusalem as long as the walls were not repaired. He said, dude, I sat down and I wept. I fasted. It broke my heart. Any worthy plan, visionary plan has got to start with a burden. It's got to start with uh, somebody or several somebodies that looks at a work of God and says, hey, there's a need for this. There's a need for that. And, 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 And we get under a burden for it. Not only does it begin with a burden, start with a, a burden, it's energized by prayer. Notice what he did. He does this in, in, in verse 4. He says, I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. But look in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 3. 
He comes before the king. His countenance is sad. He's already been weeping and fasting and mourning and praying. And he comes before King Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes knows this dude. He trusts this dude. He normally has a joyful countenance, but here he is sad and despondent. And King Artaxerxes looks at him and says, basically, hey, bro, what's going on? That's the Christian pal version. Okay. What's wrong with you? Verse 3, and I said unto the king, let the king look forever. Why should not my countenance be sad? In other words, kings, I'm about, king, you, you asked me, Artaxerxes, I'm about to tell you, why shouldn't I be sad and brokenhearted? The place of my father's graves lieth in waste. The gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said to me, for what dost thou make request? Now, that was a game changer. He says, Nehemiah, I trust you. You're brokenhearted and sad about what's going on or not going on in Jerusalem. Tell me how I can help. And I love the next phrase. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I love this, that before he ever made a request of the earthly king, he had already come before the heavenly king to get some orders. God had it all established. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor of thy sight, that thou wouldest send me to Judah unto the city of my father's sepulchers that I may build it. Energized by prayer. And he says, hey, I see it, I see it, and here's how we're, what we're going to do about it. And then I love this part. It's translated into action. He just didn't sit in the seat of do nothing. He said, hey, God's given me a vision. He's given me a burden. He's given me a plan. And I'm going to go do it. And I'm going to see if there are some people around me, as it says in the Old Testament, whose hearts God has touched. I want to say this to you, gang. Hear me. That for 60 plus years, praise the name of Jesus, this church has been full of people whose hearts God has touched. Who have caught the burden. Who've bathed it in prayer. And have locked arms and said, let's go to work. So I've been praying. You've been praying over these last several months and several years. So I'm going to be, I'm, 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 I'm going to be as transparent today and, and really as honest and as, as genuine as I hope is humanly possible. Our church has experienced, just like every church, struggle. We've decreased in attendance. That didn't just start at COVID. But we have. Our attendance has done this. Then COVID hit, and it did that. We're like, Shazam. <laughs> By the way, every church that happened to. It happened to every church. All right? And some have been able to rebound quicker than others. Some hadn't. Oh, we've been struggling to rebound. But you know this, because you have the same heartbeat as I do. It didn't, hadn't been because we hadn't sought after it or prayed for it or strive to see it happen it just hadn't happened but but let me say this and here's what i'm going to tell you we have we we several months ago we hit a plateau where we flatlined in other words praise the name of the lord we were able to stop this and it flatlined and guess what the lord began to do he started taking us 
This right here. And we have been growing. Our numbers, and I, I know numbers is just one metric. Attendance is a metric to use to gauge the health of a church. It's not the only one, but it is one. And so, but praise the Lord, our numbers have been picking up. We've been on an upward trajectory, praise the name of Jesus. So we average right now. This year, this year, we've averaged 475.3. I'm still looking for that 0.7 that I can add to the 0.3. Where's that seven-tenths human? All right, I'll stick him on the end there. All right. Four hundred seventy-five. You say, well, that's not the 800 that we ran 10 years ago. No, you're right, it's not. But there are some extenuating factors that have gone into that, by the way. But it ain't the 300 we were running a year and a half ago. Right? By the way, do you know that like 95% of the churches in America never have an attendance of over 200? And that's not a play. Hear my heart. You know that's. I'm, I'm, I do not say that as a boastful comment at all. But I, sometimes we get kind of. I I get the mully grubs and I get down in the mouth. Oh, oh, we ain't got nobody. We got no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. Do you know that the average church in America, ninety percent of them, ninety-five percent, they would shout and rejoice if if they had four hundred and seventy-five point three people average in attendance every week. So I know to whom much is given. Hey, 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 to whom much is given, much is required. I know that. I realize that. I realize our heritage and our, our history as well as anybody in this room. Okay, I get, I get it, my brother. But I want to say glory to the name of Jesus. He's given us some growth. He's given us some growth. I just want to know if y'all are still there. I thought, hey, are we dead? No, we're not. There's still life. There's life. Remember several weeks ago we preached, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Ezekiel said, Lord, can these bones live? And God brought life into what people consider dead bones. Can I take... You say, are you fixing to call us dead bones? No, 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 no. I'm just saying that the same God who did impossible things and hard things and difficult things in the Old Testament, he's not dead. And he's the same God that can help us do difficult and impossible things today for his honor and glory. And he is helping us. What's our church going to be like in five years? I don't know. Let me give you some thoughts, though. Let me give you a five-year vision. Now, this isn't exhaustive. It's just five years. What are some things that we'd like to see reality in five years? And if I turn this way and read it, it's because I don't have my glasses and I can't read well the back wall there because I'm getting old. Okay, so I'm going to turn this way. All right. By the summer of 2027. So let's talk about our mission. All right. Some things about our mission. So I'm going to need your help, my brother. I would love to think that in five years from right now, we could have a hundred different adults and teens 
new hundred that have gone that in these next five years will go on a short-term mission trip somewhere around this world. In America, outside America, I would love to think that 50%, 50 of the 100 could, be, could, could go outside of the United States. Uh, several of you in this room have been on an, uh, an international mission trip and even one here in America. But somebody tell me who has gone. What, what, what are you, and it's okay to talk back to me. What is it you come back to America with or come back to Goldsboro, North Carolina with when you've gone on a mission trip? What's something that you come back thinking and feeling and sensing? Somebody tell me one or two things. More of a burden for what? For souls? right? More, more, more of an understanding of what's needed around the world outside of our little four walls, outside of our county? How many of y'all know that's true? Say amen right there. Well, can I tell you, I'm praying that a hundred more sitting right here in the next five years will go on a short-term trip. Next, please, dear brother. I'm praying I'm praying that in our discipleship, you've heard us talk about D groups. We've been talking about D groups. Our D groups started this week. I believe we have around 15 discipleship groups uh, right now that have begun. I'm praying that in five years that we will have in five years from right now, 200 people in intensive weekly discipleship. In that accountability group, that discipleship group, that's 40 to 50 groups. You say, Christian, you believe that's doable. I absolutely believe that's doable. And I'm praying that God will raise that up and make that happen. I'm also praying this. Next one, please. That this past month, last month, we had 22 people go through our starting point class. You're like, well, that's not a big deal. I heard of a church that had 200 to go through it at one time. Well, glory to the Lamb, okay? But that ain't us right now. So we had 22 that went through it, though. Hallelujah. We're going to have three installments a year of, 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 of starting point class. And I'm praying that in five years, the Lord will have enabled us to have 30, I'm sorry, 30, I can't read either, 300 people to have gone through the starting point class. Pray with us about that, would you? Stewardship. Now, gang, this is a biggie. And we've been saying this for years. <laughs> I'm praying that in five years, by July of 2027, that Faith Church will be totally, totally, totally debt-free. Now, right now, we have a $1.4 million debt. We've been paying on that debt since 2008. The debt is largely due to the ministry center, and uh, which was a multi-multi-million dollar construction project. We're down to 1.4. It seems like we've been in one point something for the last gazillion years okay i can't wait for the day that we get it under a million dollars and i'll be like dude we're cooking with gas right now okay you know we pay twenty thousand dollars a month that's six thousand dollars more than we're required we're required fourteen thousand 
a month payment on the debt, but we're putting 20000 a month down. And then, you know, through the year, we add to that and we put more down on the debt so we can pay it off sooner. Well, I'm praying and I'm asking Jesus, and we're going to devise a plan that we can pay this off and be out of debt in five years to the glory of God. Can you imagine $20,000 a month that we could take that we're spending on debt right now that we could put right back in the ministry locally and globally and it not go toward debt. Hallelujah. Next one, please, dear brother. The Lord's put it on our hearts. We'd like to renovate the foyers, make it more warm, more appealing. You say, what's wrong with our foyer right now? Nothing. Nothing. But we want to stay current. We want to keep it up to date. We'd like it to be more warm and inviting. And we're not trying to get it to look like a hotel lobby. We're not trying to get it to look like a hospital. Not trying to get it to look, look like a funeral home. We want it to look, look like a, a foyer and a lobby of a local church. But we want it to be warm, open, and inviting. And guys... You do this at your, at least I hope you do this at your house, but every 15 to 20 years, you start seeing stuff that needs to be updated. Can I remind us of this? That in 2000, we had this major project in the auditorium and we redid the carpet, the pews, everything in 2000. And then guess what we did? Eight, eight years later, we put new carpet down in the auditorium. We redid the pews in 2008 that had been done in 2008 years. You know why we did that? Because it was needed. Because the carpet looked like it does right now. And I ain't happy with that. I know some of you don't care about how I care. And a lot, a lot of folks care how it looks. And do you know that we've scrubbed, 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 scrubbed? It ain't coming up. Not till the carpet comes up. But how many of y'all think that it is important? And if you can do better, you ought to do better. How many of y'all believe that? I believe that's biblical. Some of y'all afraid to raise your hand. I don't know. You guys. So, Lord willing, it's time. It's been 14 years. We haven't done anything in here. But we need to. Uh, uh, we, uh, you notice the carpet in the hallways lately? Gag a maggot. Okay. <laughs> we need to redo them. It's time. Those, that carpet out there is 22 years old. That carpet's outlived our dogs that we got at home. I'm telling you that right now. And we got one dog that's got like 10 lives. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's just time. It's time. It's time. It's not wrong. It's just time. The bathrooms ain't been renovated in 22 years. That, it's about time for that one. All right. You don't have to amen because that's the truth. I know that. I, I say amen myself a hundred times on that one. The, the high school educational wing upstairs. The middle school wing, it needs new flooring. It needs an upgrade. It needs an uplift. We need to bring it into 2022. And then some, okay? I'm just saying, Top Town, Top Town has not been refurbished in 14 years. It's time to refurbish Top Town.
And that is one area that I'll go to battle with you over. Because I believe that's, that's vitally important. Because if we ain't, if, 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 let, 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 listen to me, how many of y'all know that if young mothers and daddies don't feel comfortable about the place they're dropping their babies off, you think that young couple's going to come back to church? Negator. That's why that's so important. So, but you got to have a strategy. You got to have a plan and you got to have some do re me to be able to do it. That's why it falls under stewardship. Right now we need to reseal and resurface the parking lot. We did this just a few years ago and it looked beautiful. It looked awesome. But I was walking out there this week, walking across the parking lot and there's a big old cracky in the parking lot, dude, that a lady of her high heel got stuck in that. It might break her ankle and I don't want that to happen. Okay. I don't want anybody breaking anything. I'm just know that stuff like that. You gotta, and how many of y'all know that asphalt isn't the cheapest right now, right? Okay. Um, Hey, I'd love to think that in five years, our church could give $1.5 million to outside ministry causes. That would be the bomb. If in five years we could give $1.5 million away to other ministries in the missionaries around this world. What about church planning? What are some of our goals with church planning? And this goal we've had for five years, okay? But I'm praying that the Lord will enable us to plant and mother a church within a 45-mile radius of where we are. Do you know that in eastern North Carolina, there still are some pockets and some areas and some neighborhoods and some communities that do not have a hot, vibrant, Jesus-exalting, Bible-loving, soul-conscious local church? And I'd like to find out where those places are. And maybe even in an effort for church revitalization, but to help come alongside that church and then to plant another church. Next slide, please. Plant another church in America in the next five years. And then let's go outside the borders. Let's see if there's somebody that God will raise up from our church, from our congregation that will go overseas and we can help them. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about plucking somebody from some other church. I'm talking about God raising up from among us and sending them internationally the next five years. And then evangelism. I'm coming down to home stretch. Evangelism. Winning people to Christ. I love to think that in five years, in the next five years, we could baptize 150 people. You said, that ain't nothing. I know a church that baptized 150 in one Sunday. And you know what I say about that? Glory to the Lamb. But that ain't us right now. We're not there. How about, how about this next year? What if we, what if we baptize 30 all right, that'd be a victory. That'd be awesome. I'd, I'd do, jump up and do that and click my heels. I can't even do it without falling over, but I would. And to think that God would help us do 150 baptisms a year, I mean, in five years, that would be great. Next one, please. This is the last one. I want us to start having 
Church-wide soul winning. Again. Calling it family soul winning. Saturday morning. Let's just go out. Here's the thing. Because we're not going to see soul saved. We're not going to see growth. And we're not going to grow. Write this down. We're not going to grow until we go and sow. And that's all there is to it, ladies and gentlemen. That ain't easy. That ain't cool. That ain't popular anymore. But we're not going to grow if we get away from going and sowing. And you can write this down. If we don't go and sow, we're not going to grow. So you know what that means, gang? That means somebody has to go out and sow. Somebody's got to go. Somebody's got to take the gospel. Somebody's got to go to the neighborhoods. Somebody's got to go to neighbors. Somebody's got to go to the people in Goldsboro and Wayne County and within a 30-minute drive from here. Or else we're not going to grow. You say, preacher, we don't run 800. We don't. Well, can I tell you something? I tell you what. If we had as many hooks in the water as we had 10 years ago, But it's been hard to get some more people to drop some hooks in the water. Okay? So we're going to have family soul winning once a month in the morning on Saturday morning. Because I believe soul winning is important. I believe evangelism is important. I believe it's the heart of Jesus. And what better thing for a kid to see than his mom and daddy giving the gospel out to people. God help us, okay? Hear me. Will you pray with us about these things? Will you get under a burden about these things? Will you, will you join with us in praying about this? I'm going to give you the last two thoughts and we're going to pray, Okay? Thought number one, it has to have a visionary plan. Thought number two, something worth building is going to encounter opposition. It's going to encounter opposition. Gershom, Sambalat, Tobias, they were discouraging. They were critical. They were opposing. There's always going to be that. Even within our own church, there are going to be people that are draining in their criticism. That's just human nature. Doesn't mean they're bad people or terrible people. But it, but it doesn't mean I have to listen to them. It doesn't mean you've got to listen to that negativity. And it certainly doesn't mean you've got to let them infect you. If I am positive, it's because Jesus has helped me make a, church, uh, make a choice to be positive. And sometimes I get discouraged by the criticism and the negativity. But that's normal. That's just how life is. You know what we're going to do by the grace of God? And you know what I want you to help me pray that God helps me do? Keep trucking. 
If it's right, we're going to keep doing it. I said, if it's right, we're going to keep doing it. And you can voice your opinion. I don't expect everybody to be yippy skippy about everything I've even shared this morning. That's okay. You got your opinions and I got mine. I'm talking about somebody's just a critic and just down, 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 down all the time. Don't be that guy or that gal. But it's going to happen. So what are we going to do when the criticism comes? What are we going to do when the opposition comes? Because I can tell you this right now. I, I know one who doesn't want heaven to be populated and hell to be unpopulated, and that's Satan. Our greatest opposition comes from him. We're going to keep trucking for the glory of God. Something worth building requires involves a visionary plan it's going to encounter opposition but i close with this something worth building requires committed people who will work together (laughs) verse six says the people had a mind to work so let's break that down three words i break it down with you with committed are you committed oh we need commitment not in and out, not up and down, not hot and cold. Not, I, hey, I got excited and pumped up because Jim McComas was here, and now that he ain't here, now it's four weeks later, and, and I ain't nowhere to be seen. That's not commitment. Committed, consistent, steady, 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 steady. Committed, work. Circle that word, work. Work. That's that dirty four-lettered word, four-lettered word, work. It takes work. We can't just sit back and say, boy, it'd be nice if, hey, look at this plan we have. No, no, no. Somebody's got to go to work. And then the word together. There's a synergy when we work together. We do exponentially more together than we ever could do individually. So let me give you the takeaway. Do you know only 26% of churches in America are considered to be growing? Did you know that only 9% of churches over 50 years old are growing? Do you know that a church plant grows exponentially faster than an established church? We have to answer the question today if the best days of ministry for Faith Church are behind us or ahead of us. The health of a church is going to determine the growth of that church. And I love what John Maxwell says. He says it takes dream, it takes teamwork, teamwork to make the dream work. Brother Gary, would you help me real quick? Would you come up here for a second? Ethan, would you come up here, sir? Brother Gary, would you stand right here beside me on this side? Ethan, would you stand right here, please? Brother Gary, and I'm not, Brother Gary, I love and respect this dear brother. He's old enough to be my dad, okay? And I don't, I know that may sound, but, but, but you are, okay? He has children my age. 
Ethan is not my son. I'd be proud of him if he was. But he's young enough to be my son. As I read chapter 3, it begins to list all the portions and segments of the wall that were repaired. And then it lists those who repaired them. But here's a statement that is made over and over and over again in chapter 3. It basically says this. And -and so-and-so built the fish gate, okay? And next to them was... And next to them, and next to them, and next to them, you know what our church needs? Our church needs a whole army of people who realize that it takes dream work, it takes teamwork in order to ever see the dream work. And it takes all of us, it takes all ages. It takes all personalities to work together. Let's work together. Let's stand and kneel and pray and work and love and go and serve. Shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, to see the work of God built for the glory of God.